This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today, we move out in perspective a little, looking, thinking, and talking about how built spaces and landscapes integrate into the world around us, connecting us as people to the places we are, and considering how this next level out perspective can expand our own sense of our gardens. David Abelow is an award-winning architect at Abelow Sherman Architects in New York. In his long career, David has worked with notable architects, including I.M. Pei, and on notable urban designs and historic projects. He has served as a visiting critic at Columbia University and at the Parsons School of Design. He joins us today to share more about his own experiences and thoughts on the landscape and architecture connection, how it works or doesn't. Welcome, David. Well, thank you, Jennifer, and I'm thrilled to uh, be here and have this conversation with you. I I love your work. I love the show, and uh, it is a different perspective that... um, you're looking at today. And uh, I have to confess up front that I grew up uh, in a household where my mother was an inveterate gardener. Mm-hmm. And I think my um, my early life exposure was um, hard labor, digging, digging and digging. The fact that I've reemerged as someone as a fan of the garden is a, <laughs> is a triumph of the psyche, I think. <laughs> And not an unusual one, actually. So many people share stories that include that exact scenario, the, the forced child labor in the garden on behalf <laughs> of, of parents and then kind of moving away from it and coming back to it as an adult. You know, I think you've already started it, just with that scenario. Y- you bring up this concept of... Um, where gardens fit in our world. And I I guess I would like to start with having you articulate for listeners your approach as an architect to not only the architecture you're working on, but how you philosophically approach that interface between the building you're designing and the space in which it sits and will will live with. Well, Jennifer, it's it's a it's a fascinating and ongoing, virtually an obsession of mine, and I think that whether one is working with a existing building, a new building, a modern building, or a traditional building, that every one of these structures, whether it's a home or an institutional building or a commercial building, uh, with great exception, have at some place a window. And that window may be an enormous piece of plate glass. It may be a small colonial style window with foggy glass. Regardless, it there is the history of architecture and of man's, I think, underlying psyche is to connect to the outdoors and not, you know, go past being a a cave dweller. People always talk about light and view relative to the architecture in their lives. And to that extent, I've always viewed a window as an opportunity to look into the outdoors in a fashion that I call 
the first next room so that that view to the outdoors isn't just, oh, I'm in here and the outdoors is there. It's about if you looked inward in your house, you might see if you're in a sitting room, you might see a living room. But if you look out a window, you're looking out into what is that first next room. And therein lies enormous opportunity to define that room for on all types of levels, from functional levels to levels that have to do with um, things that uplift the human spirit, all of which can be, I think, manipulated through in a very positive way through design. Wow. I, I love this perspective of the first next room. And I also love how you just turned kind of inside out my initial thinking about how architecture considers the landscape and the landscape architecture. Because in this response, you are inside the building looking out. And when I was starting, and, and clearly there are multiple ways to think about that, but I love that meta thinking because what I was thinking when you first, when I first asked the question was I was on the outside looking at the building, not in the building and thinking about how it interfaces on the exterior. But clearly there are all of these different planes of existence of how a built structure Interfaces. Absolutely. Right. And I hadn't really thought about that, David. Well, and, and what's fascinating, no matter which avenue you, you jump into it from the outside or as I just introduced from the inside yeah. looking out, they're the flip side of the same coin and they, they inform one another mm -hmm. so that one uh, may never have stepped foot in a building. So one's first approach to the building and the relationship of that building to its landscape has, sets up all sorts of cues and one typically begins to imagine what is it like inside and then therefore one has certain expectations that then can either be uplifted or disappointed depending on what happens from there. Therefore, I mean, I think there are lots of things to consider both at a large scale and at the small scale of even uh, the casual homeowner and the and the, the weekend gardener warrior mm -hmm. and people you know whether we're talking about um, an urban environment where one has very little ability to change walls and backs of buildings or fronts of buildings across the street or uh, people living um, maybe in a, a leafy suburb who they want to express themselves within the landscape and have an interaction, but they kind of don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. And there are so many examples that I'd love to talk about during our conversation about what options people have to um, invest in themselves, really, and how they relate to the outdoors. Because I think we're, we're the reason we're sort of all here is that it has such a positive experience for all of us and 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 truly a way one refuels one's uh, one's soul. Definitely. And that it, it can have such a profound positive effect. And when not thought about or deployed strategically and thoughtfully, it can have such a profound negative impact that you can't even put your finger on sometimes. That's true. 
and just backing up, I'd like to introduce a concept that we might circle back to is that over the years I've developed a perspective and it, I, one, I think tries to be open-minded about all different kinds of style outcomes, whether it's in architecture or landscape, clothing, everything kind of is designed. But one begins to think kind of more universally and say that a bad design is not a style mistake. It's a lost opportunity. So what we're really talking about is when one moves forward with, let's say, creating an environment, and I'll focus on that design because my, my, my sartorial knowledge is pretty profoundly poor, but so I'll focus on, uh, on, on architecture. But making those choices, they don't have to be elaborate. They can be quite simple. But one must really think through, well, what am I trying to achieve? What are the options that I have? Be realistic um, when it comes to landscape. Do I have the option to cross a property line or am I constrained? Is it, is there, are there drainage issues? There are all types of real world issues that one would perhaps overlook if one were just to say, I have oh, I clipped something from a magazine and that's what I want, but you haven't really considered what it is that would be organic to that problem. And conversely, you may do something that you later say, oh, I wish I had done this, this or that. And you say, well, it's really a bad design or a failed design because of a lost opportunity. So a lot of what we try to do at Abelow Sherman Architects with our clients is to sit and talk, we talk a lot about the site, whether it's a small addition or renovation to a modest home or a blank sheet of paper with a, a, a new house. It, it's all the same conversation about uh, siting, microclimate, um, orientation, sunlight, the use of rooms and where one wants to encourage the warmth of a, of a winter sun, but one wants to discourage the heat of a summer sun and on and on. Mm -hmm. It's endlessly fascinating. Mm -hmm. Okay, so before we get deep into these discussions and some more scenarios from your own experience, give us give us a little more history. You you had a mother who was an inveterate gardener. Where were you born? Where did where did you grow up? And give us that pathway that that led you to this sure. place. I'd yeah, love to. I was born in New York City, and but raised in Connecticut. Uh, until I was 16 years old, and then my family moved um, overseas to England. And um, just jumping ahead to that, that other than visiting New York, which we did a lot as a family, living in Connecticut, suburban Connecticut, living in a European city opened my eyes uh, at you know fairly impressionable age of 16 to an enormous. Um, uh, views of history and buildings. And what became very impressive too, wasn't just the bricks and mortar, but how those buildings presented themselves within uh, a landscape environment, whether it was an, an, an urban building or a, um, a Cotswold cottage or a, a country house in Kent or, a, or an informal uh, worker's cottage along a lane in the Midlands quite eye-opening at that age. And then I moved back uh, to the United States and went back to New York 
like a homing pigeon to go to Cooper Union. And I think lost touch with some of the more garden-oriented landscape uh, ideas until my practice began to take me more outside of the city. That when we were doing lofts and apartments, there was a little, very little opportunity other than roof terraces, which is a whole other category to express oneself with landscape. So my, my work has taken me to the immediate suburbs uh, around um, New York, to the farther exurbs north of the city, and uh, the, the West Coast and Europe and Israel, Jerusalem. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. David Abelow is an award-winning architect. His life and work on projects all over the world, including his own back garden landscapes with his wife, Lorraine, has given him plenty of fodder for thinking about the built environment and connecting to place thoughtfully. We'll be right back after a break with more. Stay with us. The first next room. This really shifted my thinking. I guess I consider the interface between house and garden from the outside, because that's where I like to be, outside. And that's where the interface, at least from my seat, can be so jarringly dissonant, harsh, poorly thought out. But hearing David talk about the first next room really turned me around, and like listening to Courtney Allen talk about reading the landscape, or Margaret Roach tell us about the view from her window to the driveway, which she then turned into a garden. This perspective has me thinking about the views out of all of my windows and doors. It has brought more fully to mind for me a few of my views, which I don't love all of. For instance, one of them looks into the exterior wall and side door to my neighbor's garage. But in the far upper left-hand corner of this window view, from the inside looking out, I can see the daily sunset and the far silhouette of the coastal mountain range in the west. It's a small but mighty powerful and uplifting aspect to this small part of the window's view in my suburban house. David's got me thinking about how I could plant outside this window to leave just this portion of the view framed and keep the uplift it provides me fully in place and enhanced. Because in thinking about the exterior spaces and view sheds as part of the first next room from the inside of our living areas, we underline the fact that the whole world is our living environment. And we break down those boundaries of separation. And if it's all part of home, we treat it differently, don't we? And by that, I mean, I hope, that we treasure it more, we respect it more, we appreciate it, go look at it, and we protect it far more. Here's to full inclusion and care for the first next room outside of each of our windows. Now back to our conversation with architect and garden considerer, David Avalo. 
This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with architect David Abelow, who's exploring with us some of the ways of thinking about and seeing our built and landscaped environments, including how they connect, how well they connect, and how to address when they don't connect. As we come back to our conversation, David is sharing some pivotal and formative moments in his work that have really become the foundation for how he as an architect considers the outside spaces of his projects, or as he likes to think of them, the first next rooms, waiting to be part of our lives out of every door and window. You know, there have been a few uh, aha moments and some of them subtle and quiet, some of them pretty pretty, you know, rock my world kind of thing. Mm. And, you know, when one as a um, part of my experience in, in living overseas happened earlier at the age of seven, when my father took work in England, and we went for a three month period, but he remained working over there. So I would, you know, when one walked the Tuileries, let's say, at age seven, and realized the the extent of not just planning and care and but the different textures, whether they were the ground plane or hundreds or if not thousands of uh, brown chestnuts falling you know, to the ground that people just left and it became part of this sort of wonderful aroma and texture and seeing how people strolled and the whole cultural backdrop to this great to a, a city like Paris to, to see how people interacted with their environment based on landscape. And that, so I think first and foremost, I became an urbanist and, um, and it wasn't really until later in my practice as I, as I began to do the exurban houses that I could take some of those ideas, mostly of what I call, um, landscape perspective. So, as an example of going back to the conversation about the, the outside through a window being the first room, well, that's the near ground. You then have like any room, there's sort of an implied boundary to that room, although outside it generally is some other kind of subtle shift, whether it's a border or a change of material that one would walk on. And then there's a middle ground, a near ground where certain kinds of plantings invite the eye to go out and the body to open up, let's say a French door and stroll out and experience that room and then kind of step out more into this sort of feeling of nature, although it's highly synthesized. And then in a larger property, one then can even open up view corridors that take the eye sometimes for miles. And you don't necessarily experience it by walking there, but the the mind takes it in and integrates everything else that you've experienced in your own smaller domain with that environment. And um, these are wonderfully uplifting things for people and not all sites and houses and, and homes can experience that, but they, many of those same properties can be synthesized at all types of different scales um, with just a very few moves of design that um, 
are sort of hiding in plain sight, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, an example of that might be that my wife and I recently moved from a more kind of a tree-lined older neighborhood with, you know, the front porches of houses lined up to a more rural uh, environment, six or eight miles inland from the coast of Connecticut. And we saw on a map that there was a an adjacent property where the person would actually plow this 20-acre field and keep it as a, a land trust, a fallow farm field. And by simply taking down a few trees that were second growth trees that were really harming what, what we discovered to be some marvelous mature species of oaks and what have you, we now have a, um, a two-mile view through a, a sort of small lens from our backyard and from other windows within the house. And it's changed our, um, the, you know, we love the woods, but sometimes the woods feels too close. So I've learned in my later part of my life here that cutting things down is can be just as informed as planting things. So I've, I've now kind of begun to think very carefully about being an editor as much as I am a gardener. Mm-hmm. And um, that sort of editorial control to the extent that one can can do that in one's life, what one plants, what one prunes, what one says, oh, I don't like that grouping, enormously powerful tools that we have. Yeah. As I'm following you and trying to visualize these things, it's such a matter of paying attention to what we see and how it makes us feel. And as a result of that, do we want to enhance it? Do we want to, you know, change it up? So I'm thinking of you as this little boy in the Tuileries looking at the the spiky chestnuts on the ground and, and that like color and texture and aroma and the sensuality of that and being aware of how that affected your your mindset and your emotional mood and then you and your wife recognizing that this bigger view opened something up for you psychologically and emotionally that was that was positive and um, maybe even head clearing and so I think so much of this has to do with getting away from that idea that you referenced earlier in the conversation of like seeing a picture in a magazine and trying to slavishly replicate it and instead just being really open to the spaces we're in and trying to imagine it's like it's almost like virtual reality but but real of, right. <laughs> of trying to step into these different perspectives higher the lower ground plane what is it inside what is it outside i had a a wonderful conversation with the gardener and writer Margaret Roach in which she described this epiphany moment with a friend at her kitchen sink who was like, why are you looking out this window at your driveway when you could like, you know, rip up that driveway and plant some trees and have a beautiful view? And sometimes we just can't see what we can't see. And so this perspective that you are bringing of trying to get us to shift our view a little bit and deepen our awareness of where we are and how that makes us feel based on what we're seeing is it's really it's really cool well and I think it requires um, a mental discipline that is not hard to acquire people get intimidated because they don't know the names of all the species mm-hmm. I know I don't 
and, and never have pretended to. That's why I would dig the hole and someone else would play, you know, say this is what we're putting in that hole when I was a boy. But I think from the point of view of saying what are the things that I love about the moments I can take in my life where I am relaxed, where I can think my thoughts or I can sit with my children or read a book or something like that and what what elements could I bring to bear that would elevate that for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. And it, these don't have to be massive public works level gestures. These can be almost microscopic. And the other thing I think I've learned is that, and this is, I guess, just a, you know, a, a, I'm not espousing it as a, um, like a, a doctrine, but again, I'm using the example of the, of the house that we've been in for about a year there were lots of different, like I call it the Noah's Ark concept of specimens, you know, like every one of everything. <laughs> and they're beautiful flowers, but we began to, as I use this word, to be editors, mm -hmm. we would pull out and transplant. And I wanted to go from having that fine zero brush to having a, a broad um like a billboard brush and I want to paint the landscape so that we would, we went to a nursery and bought, you know, like, I don't know, 15 or 16 of these sort of low lying evergreen shrubs that I'm forgetting the name of. It doesn't matter, but they're indigenous, they're hardy, they work on hillsides. And rather than saying, I'm, I'm worried that I don't have successive blooming, I just have this painted landscape of green. And then, you know, from seed, there might be some washes of cosmos or bachelor's buttons or ferns or something like that, that set it and forget it. I mean, yeah, you might have to go out and divide them at some point. But, you know, and I, I'm, I'm not knocking the, the people out there who love to tend their roses. I mean, that is a, a passion and it's a whole other universe. But um, in terms of saying, for those of us who want to live their lives and experience landscape, but aren't dedicated to the ongoing, the incredible care and, and nurturing and sometimes expense that all of this takes place, there are choices one can make. And um, a very good friend of mine, a, a very talented landscape uh, architect, Dorian Winslow, mm. uh, who I think you've, you've interviewed. Yes, with women's um, work, yeah. She's you know lovely talented person. And my wife and I went up to visit her and her husband beginning of the summer. And I hadn't seen her property for a really long time. And like our property, it was pretty heavily wooded. And rather than just opening up a simple view corridor, Dorian actually chose to, on this sort of uphill swath from the back of the house, create a, a 200 foot alley of grass, leaving the big specimen trees on either side. And going up into this um, hillside where there was a, a really old stone wall, which is their property line. But it brings me to the next concept that I've learned um, in, in the work that I've done and saw it again at, at Dorian's house is we often live in an environment where we don't own very much of what's around us. Yes, I have clients who have 50, 100 acre estates and all that sort of stuff. But what I'm really talking about, like what Dorian did, 
is by opening it up the way she did and featuring something that is the end of her property that would have just been lost in the woods. One's eye sweeps up the hill and you imagine that her property just goes on for another half a mile. And so the, then the mind begins to wander and there's a, there's a feeling of freedom that goes along with that. And it's a very uplifting moment to sit on her back porch and look up that LA and experience that. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. From being a child in England and New York to working with IM Pay and in urban design to now, David Abelow's life and work, including his own back garden landscapes created with his wife Lorraine, have provided him with some interesting perspective on how to see, how to consider our built spaces to our landscaped places. We'll be right back with more after a break. Stay with us. So here's what I'm thinking out loud about this week. Editing and practicing and editing some more. Getting down to the most essential aspects of what we're doing and why we're here. David talks a lot in our conversation about the skills and benefits of editing. And really, it's just good advice and homework for us as gardeners and us as people and inhabitants on this generous planet. Anything worth mastering takes practice, right? From faith, to growing flowers, to saving seed, to patience itself, to making dinner. And editing. Editing is almost as hard as committed practice and almost as hard as patience because that's kind of what editing is. It's practicing patience in action. To edit means we have to have created something in the first place. And to edit means that we reconsider that creation carefully. And we determine for ourselves what is most essential to its wholeness and purpose. And what is not most essential. What is in fact cluttering it up diminishing its strength and personality and point. I know that telling any part of your garden, your house, your writing, your art, that it's not essential can be very, very hard. So hard. Removing a living plant that is not working in a space, in a group, or deleting a favorite sentence, or changing a habit of convenience that maybe you've had for years and are attached to. These are not easy things to do. But they can and do clear the way for a better view, a better feel, a clearer understanding and path to progress and relationship. Because as David mentions towards the end of the interview, we do not garden as a form of decoration. We garden as an urge and desire for interaction, which implies relationship. And when you get a relationship down to its most essential, well, then you know where you stand. And you're willing to stand up for something this clearly essential, like our gardens. Hmm. Now, back to our conversation with architect David Abelow about the landscape and architecture connection. It's a relationship and an interaction, not a decoration. This is Cultivating Place, 
Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. We're back now to our conversation with architect David Abelo. As we come back, we talk about life cycles. We talk about what we want from our gardens. And we talk about how David considers different spaces. Everything you're describing is reminding us of cycles in our own lives, you know, I, I'm thinking of you and your your wife moving after your children are grown and left the, the house of cycles of succession in forests or through cultures and that we're not all the same person. We're not all, it's not a one size fits all approach. Some people love an enormous view and it is refreshing and uplifting. Other people are daunted by that. And um, nobody, you know, not everybody wants to live in the desert. Not everybody wants to live next to an enormous ocean view or, or mountain range view because of just how that makes them feel while others are completely invigorated by that. And so paying attention to who you are and where you are and how those things fit together gets back to your idea of discernment and awareness and then judiciousness with that. So yeah, talk to us a little bit about um, some of your experiences in in the urban, quasi-urban spaces and how you deal deal with with those. Well, what's I'll use an example of a Mm -hmm. project we recently did in Brooklyn. Garden apartment, duplex. You look out the back windows and what you saw were brick garden walls on three sides, some dying grass, a tree that probably grew from a weed, you know, something invasive, and a lot of wires. And the urban condition can be very, very tough But when you looked at it as a unit of space, you really had to say, you know, there's something ideal about this because like a perfectly proportioned room, let's say it's 25 feet long and 18 feet wide and the walls are of a certain height. And all of a sudden one imagines, well, my, the basic human cone of vision, our visual range takes me about up to here versus there. So you can begin to say, okay, well, if this was an interior room, and my approach being primarily an architect, obviously, that I begin to think of how people live and use space. And so for me, that little humble urban backyard by saying, okay, well, in this area where you step out before you go through this glass door, we could put bluestone of simple, fairly rugged material as an indoor material, and then we can repeat it outside. So all of a sudden you're blurring that line just in the way, like in a home, you may have the same hardwood floor or carpet meander from room to room. You're sort of used to being within, yes, you may have accent rugs here and there or what have you, but there's a, there's a unifying element that ties these spaces together. So that would be, let's say, a a simple selection. And then from there, you could have grass or turf. And well, what are your other options? Instead of bringing it all the way out to the edges of the wall, one would want to create a border. So that the analogy in my mind becomes like a beautiful antique rug. It isn't all about the geometric center. It's also about the simplicity of the border. 
and the feeling of center versus edge, then because the back wall was so compromised with all the clumps of wires and all that stuff that you can't touch, we decided and we couldn't dig down that much. So we put a raised wall with soil and lo and behold, one can have the option of putting in something that you would never put because it's probably illegal in most suburbs, bamboo. <laughs> Invasive, non-native. And people I know of the years have tried to plant it outdoors with, with steel underground. And the next thing you know, it's taking over the neighborhood. <laughs> but properly managed in, let's say, in New York City, in Brooklyn, bamboo can be incredibly robust and grow to 15 or 20 feet tall and make a green wall that doesn't travel because it's const it's constrained by these masonry walls and quite hardy and and um, its water needs are pretty modest etc cetera, etc cetera. and rather than building yet another brick wall you've made a green wall and then there can be mid-ground we talked about that before there could be a small sort of prize, like I would call it a, a championship tree, something of enormous beauty and, and, and that one like, like contemplating a, a beautiful shell that you pick up on the beach and put in your pocket and, you know, bring it home and put it next to your desk. That tree becomes this visual talisman, if you will, of, of, of one's emotions and interests and, and watching it through the years in this backdrop. So all of a sudden you now have this perfect urban room and yes, you can, you can put the kiddie pool up and you can have a barbecue and you can do all the things that you love to do, or you can sit and read a book or you can do your yoga. And if you're not lucky enough to have access to that garden, because you're not in a garden apartment, but you're in a building where there is one, you can hope the person who gets it will share the view from your window on the second or third floor. The other thing, and I, I don't want to skip over this, both in an urban situation and suburban situation, we're seeing more and more the stewardship of the landscape to bring in um, bird life, butterflies. And um, I go back to where I was early this morning in our new home, uh, watching butterflies and hummingbirds and the few um, container gardens we've put up, which I'd like to talk about a little bit in terms of that idea of what's right through the window is the next room, because I think container gardens are something that people can do very creatively and freely, and they bring enormous joy. But if with considering the right plant material, one can begin to attract these you know, enormously um, interesting species that were now seeing more and more of, which is quite uplifting. Yeah, very, very uplifting. And I, I think that I want to go back to that perfectly proportioned um, urban room that you just described with the bamboo wall. And it illustrates so perfectly how even a small space, even a sharply constrained space can be a container as a garden can be a container for our our moods and our hopes and our dreams and our our histories that that come with us like that rock on the desk and 
how meaningful that relationship and communication back and forth, nonverbal communication is in our lives for for making life livable so that you're not staring at a brick wall with wires across it. And then on to the container garden, I think the container garden is so valuable in in being able to express ourselves in both a transportable and space-sensitive way that no matter where you live, these are possible. And so you can choose an architectural style or, or feel with your containers, and then you can fill them in all kinds of different ways to, to reflect serenity, to reflect abundance and chaotic color and and we attract but then we also support these other creatures with with them as well as our own creative expression yeah we realize that we invite them in by the act of creating these and um people i think begin to realize that um when you read in the newspaper that um bees are being stressed out by acid rain let's say and all of a sudden you realize that there's honeybees going after the pollen in your hibiscus plant or what have you that mm. you got from the garden mart. And it's, it went, maybe at first it was something that you just got because it's colorful and decorative and seasonal and fun. And then all of a sudden you realize that it has this connection to uh, life itself, not, not to get overblown about it, but that there are elements of it that begin to connect us more towards maybe who we are more at the core. And I think the garden is capable of doing that for, for many, many people. And in, in relating an architectural uh, world to that, I think one has to consider lots of options, even if one can't tear down a wall which is how we started this conversation about the constraints. So that um, I think my attitude really has, has always been and, and still is that one always has options. And they may be, they may be slim, but they may, may be just buying a roll of bamboo fencing for $45 and, and strapping it to a, a, a cinder block wall. And then putting in some ground cover or something like that. But if, as people, I, I find that people are more and more attuned to having these things around them and, and they're giving them enormous pleasure as opposed to more synthetic things. I, you know, I know I'm guilty of that in my own architectural practice with, you know, complexity, maybe fountains or overly expressive brick walls or pergolas and things like that. So as I've you know, sort of evolved my design sensibilities, I'm, I hope I'm continue to err towards simplicity rather than complexity, <laughs> although it's harder. <laughs> yeah, it is harder. You summarized it beautifully. It's, it's an evolution and they are these cycles of age and, and time and accumulated experience and sometimes even culture as to what pleases us and what grounds us. And I am pleased to hear you say that 
you feel a, a sense of people becoming much more attuned to natural elements being more satisfying to them and more filling for them. When you look and you you have a lovely cultural perspective having been overseas and been here and been in urban and then suburban and now rural or more rural areas, what how do you see us as a culture moving when it comes to this idea of integrating with and incorporating and stewarding our our landscapes no matter where we might live and and this being an important cultural value and and literacy well it's a great question because i think i was having a conversation with someone recently about well, I guess what's being called Generation Y. And the conversation drifted towards their interest in sustainability, um, concepts of permaculture, the ability to reduce one's carbon footprint and to start to sort of cherish the environment because you speak to these young people and you realize they think that not in a conspiratorial way, but truly the end might be here in terms of the, our environment. And they're quite willing to do the work. And I think that as these people come up through their own education and life experiences, the more, the more they see that our culture is inviting these uh, very simple but very powerful, more culturally accessible ideas towards sustainability, the, the, the less of a kind of fraught conversation it will become. And I'll give an example of that. When I was growing up, I had a very good friend and we were both science and kind of the nature nerds who were out, you know, catching fish and frogs and tearing their pant, the knees of their pants. <laughs> but this fellow, his, his father, um, who was a, he was a physician, he, unbeknownst to me at the time, I found this out later, was was one of the early um, adopters of a lifestyle really reckoned with or, or, or forecast by uh, Audubon. And he started a local Audubon society. And he, more than starting a society, he actually lived it. They lived in a, a normal suburban neighborhood with a small stream in the front by the, by the road. And they, they let it go with meadow grass and ferns and uh, to the extent that when it started growing, I think they got hate mail from the neighbors, like, why don't you have, what are you doing? Can't, you know, can't you mow your lawn kind of thing? And the house is still there. And it's still this marshland that's sort of been promoted around this stream. And it's only maybe, a, I would say, a quarter to a half acre. It's gotten to the point where one could imagine that that is actually what the more primordial marshes in, in southern Connecticut looked like before all the deforestation and with tall grasses and reeds and, and the peepers in the spring and the profusion of red-winged blackbirds that come to nest, which, you know, one typically doesn't see that many red-winged blackbirds in this area. But if you, if you see a well-preserved marsh, or in this case, someone who let one develop over a 40-year period, it's not uncommon to see a hundred of them coming in to nest. And it's inspiring. So I, th I think as 
more and more people um, become more and more sensitive to the fact that you can make a difference with these very localized, um, low impact, whether they're personal projects or they're um, initiatives by small towns or groups of people. Urbanistically, there are many, many more community gardens. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the positivity that's coming out of all of it and the practical benefits are, are manifold. And then coming back to, to you as an architect who has a wide range of influences and, you know, began your professional career with the likes of I Am Pay and, and has worked in all of these varieties. I mean, I, I think you have expressed some of the joy, but what are your greatest joys and hopes maybe for some of these challenges and the way that you as an architect and architecture as a field is part of this integration rather than separation in our world? Well, the integration, you know, we've talked a lot about the aesthetics of the landscape mm -hmm. and the aesthetics, not just with style, but of the interaction with the human spirit. Mm -hmm. But I think that looking forward to some of the trends in architecture and some of the practices that we try and embrace with sustainability and capturing rainwater and green roofs and um, passive building techniques that, that reduce the need for heating and cooling. Uh, we've just finished a, a, a residential project that uses uh, geothermal heating and cooling where the amount of electricity being used by this project has been reduced quite a bit since it's also a house that has the ability to have a lot of glass because of the privacy we had um, these sort of lovely almost retro uh, retractable canvas awnings to cover or shade the south south facing glass and working with some very talented landscape architects, the choice of trees around the house where a shade tree might, you know, a leafy tree, a deciduous tree might help provide shade in the summer, but allow the lower winter light to penetrate because no, everybody likes to be warmed by the sun in the winter. It's a great, a great feeling and people, you know, human beings are almost heliotropic, but too much of it and we run and hide. If the house can't process it, you know, the houses become hot and unbearable. So that that was a very interesting project that was just completed a few months ago where we were able to draw on many of these concepts that are common to both land use, siting of the building, very forward thinking about uh, the kind of glass, the kind of insulation materials, the kind of roofing materials, drainage, retention of water. At its highest level right now, most of these things are out of reach for most clients. But that said, projects like this to me are very important because I'm old enough to remember everybody talking about practices like certain kinds of insulation for buildings that seemed so far-fetched in the early 80s are now standard practice. Mm -hmm. So what is sort of today's, you know, you really have to be out there to 
grab hold of it is tomorrow's um, standard practice, as I said. And uh, geothermal being certainly one of them. Uh, in geothermal, you don't see a, the, all, all those awful air conditioning units lined up outside of houses making noise at night. Right, right. Well, I keep coming back to your use of the word practice, and, and that is definitely how I see us as as gardeners, as thinkers, as cultivators of, of space and places, that it is a practice and that you you keep returning to it with um, with sensitivity and awareness and um, trying to process and understand and then respond with care. And that is certainly what your perspective from these all these different angles um, reminds me of. Is there anything else you would like to add about your joy in the experience of, of being an architect and an architect who is aware and sensitive of, of space and landscape? I think it's, it's good to add uh, for people who are just getting going with their sensibility towards gardening that they're going to make mistakes and that you should kind of revel in those mistakes and, and sort of say, well, you know, I put something on this side of the house that didn't have enough sun. And in making that mistake, you begin to think about where the sun is in your life relative to where you live. And, and all of a sudden, your interaction with your environment through your activity uh, as a gardener and I use the word garden for meaning landscaping as well. And so it isn't just, oh, I want to decorate. It's I want to interact. And in that interaction, to whatever level anybody can do it, they may not have the time, they may not have the strength, or they may employ other people to do it. But I would encourage everybody to be thinkers about it and to be observers as they travel or look at books or television magazine articles, the internet, is to, to really hone in on what they're seeing and ask questions. You know, I, this, this doesn't mean that it has to become a full-time obsession either. It's just that the more information people have, I think the more joy they'll glean from the experience. I, I totally agree. And thank you so much for being a guest on the program today. Oh, it was my pleasure, Jennifer. David Abelow is an award-winning architect at Abelow Sherman Architects in New York. In his long career, David has worked with notable architects, including I.M. Pei, and on notable urban designs and historic projects. Today, he shared his own experiences and thoughts on the landscape and architecture connection, how it works or doesn't. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. At cultivatingplace.com this week, see some great photos of architectural and landscape interfaces from the perspective of architect and meta-garden critic David Abelow. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy 
the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.